It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hey there, welcome into the latest edition of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. We are... um, all three of us together, Ben and Sam are together in New York City. But when I logged on for this call, Ben was on one screen, Sam was on the other. They looked as though they were in separate rooms. And then Sam reached over to do something on Ben's computer and it blew my mind. Like I thought they were in completely separate locations. And then all of a sudden, Sam, you really threw me off. My whole I'm, day is weird now. Yeah, we're just existing in a, you know, I'm a, like a Doctor Strange multiverse situation. I'm just reaching across. <laughs> all of Brooklyn to, to fix Ben's, uh, Ben's computer and then coming back to my own kitchen. No, we are here in the Frank Robinson room of MLB headquarters um, together right next to each other. I'm going to say Ben's on my right this week to update everybody on the yeah. seating chat. Um, but yeah, was that a weird moment for you, Ben, when I was reaching across here? I didn't even really notice it. You know, I was just so concerned with making you the host of a zoom meeting that I set up you know, so some pretty high level For logistical reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. High level technological uh, maneuverings going on. And I was just making sure we, uh, you know, we succeeded in our goal of making you the host and Sam Dykstra is the host now. I am, I am the host of this zoom call. We should always say that like Tyler is the host. You are the person who, mm. who makes everything work here and, and points mm. us in all the right directions, mm. but mm. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, I don't add anything to the show itself. I just, I can click around on Adobe Audition to to edit it. Well, um, you introduce us. You close us out every week. I mean, if that's not hosting, I don't know what is. You introduce right. each segment usually. That's fair. Uh, it's another bad week for the guy who uh, reviewed us on iTunes and said we don't talk baseball enough. Well, we're there is one minutes. piece of baseball news I want to get to real quick, Tyler. What's that? You had something you announced. Ah, I did. I did. I, I want to get to that up, up top. So go ahead and tell everybody okay. what you're going to be doing in the, in the months ahead. Um, so three weeks from yesterday, I am leaving for Europe, uh, to be the play-by-play voice for the world baseball classic qualifiers. Regensburg, Germany is up first. Uh, that one starts in mid September. Uh, and that will feature six teams. I've got the teams, uh, in front of me, Czech Republic, Germany, Spain, France, Great Britain, and South Africa. First games for that are September 16th in Regensburg, Germany. That goes through the 21st. Uh, two teams will move on to the main world baseball classic event, which of course is coming up, uh, in March across the globe. And then the week after that, I'll be in Panama City for that qualifier at Rod Carew Stadium, which starts on September 30th. That's Panama, Nicaragua, Brazil, Argentina, Pakistan, and New Zealand. And uh, yeah, man, I'll be uh, I'll be on the play-by-play for that. Ryan Roland Smith, uh, who many of you may remember from his time with the Mariners and the D-backs, uh, who is now uh, a member of the broadcast crew for the Mariners uh, with Root Sports in Seattle. Uh, Ryan's going to be my my color guy. Uh, we've actually gotten a chance to do games together before. We did some games in Tokyo for a different event um, three years ago now. And uh, I 
could not be more excited. This is um, something that I have wanted to do for like the entirety of my baseball life and uh, pretty, pretty, pretty pumped about it. Pretty yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly excited for you and, and we're already seeing like how big the WBC is going to be next year with the team USA announcements already. Yeah. I mean, team USA doesn't have to qualify. They're not going to be participating in Germany or right. Canada, those games you're worried about, but like this is building into something with Mike Trout is already announced he's going to be there. Bryce Harper's already announced he's going to be there. Pete Alonzo, I think Paul Goldschmidt as well. Um, Trevor Story, the USA is already looking loaded, trying to, you know, win a title again in that. And if everybody's on board on the USA side, I feel like the Dominican's going to be loaded again, Puerto Rico. Um, even Team Australia is going to have Curtis Mead. He's already confirmed to be there. So yep. it's going to be a big deal. And this is the first step. This is not the first step, but it's a next step in getting us there for 2023. Right. And it is, um, it's such a different world in terms of Major League Baseball's uh, promotion and embrace of international baseball since the dawn of the WBC. I mean, Major League Baseball has always been good about, uh, you know, promoting the game globally, but the WBC has just provided this new avenue. And I feel like even this time around, you know, if you're watching a Major League telecast nowadays, they're running commercials between innings for the WBC or for the qualifiers or, you know, get your tickets now for Miami in, in 2023 or whatever it is. Um, and I just could not be more excited. I've been to the the first four WBCs uh, as a fan, just as somebody who loves baseball and loves international baseball. And uh, to get a chance to go to to these qualifiers um, as a broadcaster is, I mean, something that is a, a career highlight for me. And, it, you know, it doesn't hurt that it's in two cool places. And Oktoberfest happens to be starting in Munich uh, like three days before uh, our off day. And we happen to be like 45 minutes from Munich and Regensburg. So that doesn't hurt either. Um, but I'm pretty excited. And uh, for our purposes, there are going to be a lot of prospects over there. Um, we don't have full rosters yet, but we are very aware of the fact that there are going to be uh, some good prospect groups that are on these rosters. Um, so it's, I'm excited, man. This is going to be a lot of fun. The top two teams from each group will move on to the 2023 classic. Uh, and it's, I am, I am pretty stoked. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for you. And, excited to hear what you see from there you know yeah. selfishly of hey this guy all of a sudden looks is throwing 95 right <laughs> right like, that. like an eric pardino exactly that was the exact guy i was going to bring up who uh back in 2016 at the qualifiers when he was 16 years old he threw like 98 for brazil uh against pakistan and came on in relief in a game uh in brooklyn actually in the the qualifier that was held in brooklyn um there will be four pools Next year, um, when the, the full tournament gets started in uh, one in Taiwan, one in Tokyo, one in Phoenix and one in Miami. Um, and then the the quarterfinal rounds are in Tokyo and Miami. And then everything from then on is Miami, the semis and the championship. Uh, and people who remember that atmosphere for the, the pool round games, um, you know, four years, five years ago now in 2017, uh, I think will be pretty thrilled as to uh, what Miami has coming for uh, for the 2023 WBC. So. Tune in MLB.com. We'll have all the streams uh, and they'll be at, you know, some probably stranger times for uh, the ones that are in Germany, at least. But uh, for the ones that are in Panama, some very regular times for people to tune in and watch. And um, we'll have some fun. I'm excited. Uh, and we'll, you know, probably grab some uh, prospect interviews for ye old show before the show podcast. 
uh, while we're over there as well. So pretty cool stuff. Um, enough about me. Nobody wants to hear about me. Let's talk about some minor league baseball stuff as uh, we near the end of the month of August. Uh, Benjamin Hill back from on the road along with Sam Dykstra from Iowa. And Ben is still getting a chance to um, guide us through some of his travels this year, which include a really good story that's up on the site at MILB.com right now about the kind of lineage of ownership of the Tulsa Drillers and how today's owners for the Drillers were literally born into the Drillers family. And it's a, a really cool minor league story, Ben. Yeah, you know, I'm at this point in the season where uh, I had a bunch of trips back, you know, more or less back to back, not entirely back to back. And uh I can't always get everything I want to uh, write done before uh, the next one comes. So now is kind of wild card season in terms of what I'm writing about. And yeah, for this story, it goes back to Tulsa, uh, where I wrote a story on the owners, uh, Dale and Jeff Hubbard, who are brothers. Um, and it is a really interesting story, um, you know, how they came uh, to be so involved with the team. They grew up in New Hampshire and their dad went Hubbard, that's W-E-N-T, uh, was in the poultry business and he knew that well, you know when he retired from that and uh, sold the business that he wanted to own and operate a minor league baseball team um so he enlisted in for help in buying a minor league baseball team this is back in uh, the mid 80s 85 86 he enlisted one scott boris who he knew through the poultry business i guess uh, when scott was a lawyer he somehow uh, had some connections to the poultry industry much different and, world than scott boris inhabits currently ah, this, yeah. is back, this is back in my poultry litigation days what yeah so scott was involved in baseball then but not nearly to the extent that he became so scott boris um says to Wen hubbard okay there's three teams i know of for sale and also the tulsa drillers they're not for sale but they're owned by the texas rangers who was their affiliate at the time their parent club at the time and, uh, you know, I think a deal could be arranged. And when Hubbard visited all the uh, teams that were for sale along with Tulsa and said he fell in love with the people and the atmosphere and said, I want to buy the Tulsa Drillers. So Scott Morris ar arranged the sale of the Tulsa Drillers from the Texas Rangers to Went Hubbard. Now, when Hubbard, uh, you know, Jeff and Dale are two of his sons. At that time, they were young adults uh, living their own lives. Um, Jeff Hubbard was actually a minor league baseball player who was drafted by the Orioles in 1984 um was in the twins organization in 1986 and then got traded to the texas rangers organization right before the 1987 season which was his father's first owning the team so just a pretty bizarre circumstance that went hubbard buys the tulsa drillers and then his son jeff is on the team the next year in a totally coincidental fashion and then four years later after retiring as a player jeff hubbard was a coach for the tulsa drillers but meanwhile the brothers don't really want anything to do with the team itself and owning and operating it but you know, Went Hubbard, uh, you know, had Alzheimer's disease. They started to take over their father's affairs. They visited Tulsa and uh, realized just like their father, hey, we love it here. We do want to be involved in this. And maybe now is a good time to get back into it. And uh, for the last decade plus, they've now been the primary owners of the team. And even though they don't, they don't live in Tulsa year round, they're at every single game. Uh, when I first met them, Jeff was uh, breaking down boxes that bobbleheads were stored in and handing out bobbleheads at the front gate. Dale was driving a golf cart, shuttling fans between the parking lots and the ballpark entrance. They have a real hands-on mentality, and that is something uh, that their father really emphasized. He, he was really well-known for doing any job in the ballpark that needed to be done under the philosophy of, you know, don't ask someone else to do something that you would not do yourself as well. And so it's a, it's a great operating philosophy. It's a really well-run organization, and uh, it's a funny story that 
you know, all these decades later, the Hubbards are still in charge of the Tulsa drillers. And that all goes back to a Scott Boris arranged purchase of the team in, in the mid eighties for their father. I think that was the big twist for me was the Scott Boris aspect of it. Cause that's a name everybody recognizes. And I think minor league baseball does a great job of here's something you think, you know, here's a twist on it. And all of a sudden Scott Boris being involved in this. And, and like you said, Tulsa drillers might be a name that people know, but they might not know how it, they were bought and how they've stayed in there and, how they've become the team that they are. Um, ben, you were talking about having kind of a backlog of stories to go through. One of the spots you went to a couple of weeks back was St. Paul. And speaking of, you know, a unique arrangement there. Uh, I just love the way you describe how a pig is involved with game day action in St. Paul. How does that work? Yeah, well, as I was saying to you guys off there, the uh, the St. Paul Saints, AAA affiliate of the Twins, you know, longtime independent club before that. They started in, I believe, 1993. But if you go to their home now, CHS Field, the home dugout is on the first base side of the ballpark. And um, right next to it, as you are moving towards the outfield, you know, just right adjacent to the players is the pig pen. And there is a man with a pig right next to the players in the dugout. And that is a ball pig. And um, they've had a ball pig for literally every season of their existence. They signed their pig farmer, a man named Dennis, I want to say Halt. I'm not going to pronounce it right. H-A-U-T-H. They signed him before they signed any players. They wanted to celebrate pigs in St. Paul. And there's history behind that uh, with a uh, portion of St. Paul that was called Pig's Eye Landing. And there was a guy named Pig or Pig's Eye. I'm in the process of writing this story, so I'm going to get that history down. But the historical pig connection to St. Paul led the team when they were starting of being like, hey, we have to capitalize on that. I mean, now the team has, you know, the Yankees have Monument Park. The the Saints have Monument Pork, you know, at the ballpark. It is that kind of environment. But they have had a ball pig every single year uh, run by the same uh, who are provided by the same pig farmers, Dennis and Marilyn, uh, who also, you know, who shuttle the pig back and forth between every game. And it's a different pig each year. And, and one of the reasons it's a different pig is because they start off essentially as babies and are trained. But by the end of one season, they are already pushing the limits in terms of how big and unmanageable they are. And they get so big after that, that they could no longer be manageable ball pigs. So they go throughout the course of the season, you know, from little piglets to big boys. And they're always, they're always boys. That's another thing I learned in the second season, they got a female pig, but she was very, very hard to deal with. And they had a horrible season with the female pig. And so they said from now on only male pigs. And the reason there is because all the male pigs are fixed, but the female pigs are not fixed or spayed. Uh, so they say no females anymore, just fixed males as ball pigs. And the ball pigs always have, you know, kind of comical names, pop culture references, baseball references, whatever. This year's ball pig is named 8675-30-SWINE. You know, 8675 It's just such a mouthful. Like, is its nickname Swine? Like, what? Swiney? I don't know. Tommy Two-Tone. Yeah, that, um, that's the nickname, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't think they're going for something that rolls off the tongue. They're trying to, you know, more just get attention for it. But uh, every year it's a big deal in the Saints organization and among the the hardcore fan base. You know, what will the name of the ball pig be? And to see this ball pig grow throughout the season, uh, the primary responsibilities is the ball pig uh, delivers water to or balls to the umpire. They have, you know, he has a saddle bag on his sides and he walks out between innings uh, and delivers balls to the umpire. And the, the, um, the umps generally uh, give the pig some water, you know, from a water bottle 
one is a very heartwarming moment where, you know, the umps are feeding the pigs water or giving the pigs water and getting balls from the saddlebags. And it's just one of those things, uh, you know, that makes St. Paul what it is, a very uh, quirky place. So I'm writing that story up right now as we speak here on Thursday. And by the time this podcast is out, it too will be out on MILB.com and I was going to say wherever else fine minor league baseball stories are sold, but that's not true. It will only be yeah, on MILB.com. And if it is anywhere else, we have somebody to sue. Yeah, call our lawyers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I guess tell me and I'll call our lawyers. Also, we don't have lawyers. <laughs> Whatever. Aside from those minor things, um, I, I want somebody out there to start uh, the show before the show podcast quotes out of context. Twitter feed or something because this one wasn't on the show, but I wrote it down to make sure I had it right. When we were talking to Ben about what we were going to discuss this week, he said, quote, I talked to the team's pig farmer in the pig pen. And I feel like outside of context, that would just be the most ludicrous thing you've ever heard in your like teams, pig farmer. What, what is happening here? Or something cool. from like a 1920s newspaper clipping in which somebody was trying to make <laughs> the bullpen into the pig pen. And the pig farmer was the bullpen coach. Like, I don't, I don't yeah, know. Like, yeah, that could work. Somebody just trying something for, you a know, week. they got these pigs out there. They graze to keep the, uh, the, the grass short. Um, okay. So let's move on to, uh, another story that you got coming up, which is about a, uh, a, a world food celebrity in his crossroads with minor league baseball, Joey Chestnut, uh, paying a visit to Indianapolis. Yeah, you know, you never know what my job might bring. Last yesterday, I had the greatest uh, competitive eater of all time on the phone. Joey Chestnut uh, had a conversation with him, and that's because uh, this past Tuesday and this coming Tuesday, August 16th being in the past, August 23rd being in the future, uh, he has appeared or will be appearing at the Indianapolis Indians uh, home of Victory Field. Um, you know, it's part of a promotion that the team is doing, promoting their new dollar menu, uh, you know, where you can get uh, maybe it's not a new dollar menu, but they're promoting it. You know, one dollar hot dogs, uh, peanuts, popcorn, Cracker Jack, that sort of thing. So to promote their dollar menu, they said we, we're going to get Joey Chestnut out to the ballpark. Uh, it's easier for the Indianapolis Indians to get Joey Chestnut to the ballpark than perhaps other teams, although Joey Chestnut definitely will travel. Uh, but he now lives in Westfield, Indiana, which is only about, I don't know, about a half hour north of Indianapolis. So, you know, it's a local visit for him. So this past Tuesday, he did a series of one minute exhibitions with various dollar menu items. But this coming Tuesday, August 23rd, he is going to attempt to set the world record for eating popcorn, which I believe as it stands now is 28.524 ounce servings in eight minutes. And uh, the man who set that record, I believe his name was Matt Stoney, did so in Vegas in April of 2021 with Joey Chestnut sitting right beside him and going down in defeat. So when I talked to Joey yesterday, you know, it's serious business for him. He wants to set this record um, because he was there when the record was set and he was not the one setting it. And uh, he said he, you know, popcorn presents a challenge. It's obviously a hard food to, I mean, what all foods are hard to eat when you're trying to stuff as much in your mouth in the course of eight minutes. But he said popcorn's a challenge. Uh, he had the bad habit of, you know, scooping too much up in his hand to start and starting with two big handfuls. Need to kind of space it out a little better, you know, get those water breaks in at just the right time. Uh, he also said he expects it to be a challenge because he will be doing this alone. And, you know, like so many great competitors, you're fueled by those around you to, to reach new heights. So Indianapolis Indians fans, Show Joey Chestnut your love and support on August 23rd because it's just going to be him, him versus popcorn for your entertainment. And he needs your 
energy to get him through to eat more than 28.5, 24-ounce containers in a span of eight minutes. What a moment. And as you leave the ballpark, Indianapolis fan, Indianapolis Indians fans, I don't know why I'm talking to them directly all of a sudden. They're the ones who can see this. Like, yeah. Actually, yeah. Yeah. You're the, you're the ones who can most likely experience this. You will get bottles of Joey Chestnut's uh, wing sauce. I believe it's a green hatch and jalapeno pepper wing sauce as you leave the stadium. And he'll be signing bottles as well. So a lot going on. But uh, yeah. It's good to talk to Joey Chestnut. I've never talked to a competitive eater before. I'm not sure if I myself am a huge fan of all that world, but it's great to talk to the greatest of all time um, in, in any discipline. And uh, so it was an honor yesterday to talk to the greatest competitive eater of all time, Joey Chestnut, who, by the way, in talking to me, was talking to the greatest uh, minor league baseball uh, business and culture writer of all time. That's true. That is true. Um, just two all-time greats, uh, two Hall of Famers in their respective fields on the phone. And uh, Benjamin Hill, you can find all of his Hall of Fame caliber work at MILB.com. And uh, thanks, man. We'll uh, we'll do more of this next week. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Sam. Great talking to you guys. And Tyler, ever since you said Rod Carew, you know, which is one of the stadiums. Of Hall of Famer from, Rod Carew. Yeah. I just can't get Beastie Boys out of my mind. From Sure Shot. I got more action than my man, John Wu, and I got mad hits like I was Rod Carew. And I was trying to listen to you, uh, you know, talk about how excited you are, and I'm really happy for you, and congratulations. But I just had this Beastie Boys loop in my head the whole time. So I'm trying to get through that right now. I feel like that's kind of a Rorschach test. Like, if you hear the name Rod Carew, what song comes up in your mind? Is it Beastie Boys or probably for you and me tyler it's adam sandler adam sandler tonica song yes very much yeah, um, hit, us up. hit us up uh we'll start a poll tomorrow yeah, but yeah we'll put up a poll with those two <laughs> results those two results only and then anybody who saw rod carew play is going to be like well what what do you think of when you hear rod carew you don't think of his actual baseball career you think of i mean we could songs? ask rod carew rod carew is on twitter and i am hoping we'll be at rod carew stadium in Panama City, which would be very be, cool. That would be lovely. Be pretty Can you awesome. imagine yeah. being in a place that's named after you? No, no. That would be, you know, like it's one thing if it's like, oh, this is a, you know, here's a conference room that we dedicated to you. Uh, but to be in a a stadium, like a national stadium, that's like the baseball facility in Panama. And it's named after you. That's got to be pretty yeah. cool. And I really enjoy when they do that while somebody is living. Right. Yeah. A brief aside. I know we have an interview here coming up for a second, but and there's all there. There are arguments against doing that. You never know what's going to happen with somebody. It could look bad if some something goes bad. But you know, people like Rod Carew should be honored. Should know the the impact that they had. Yeah. Um, and and feel that before they go. So very happy for Rod. Carew. That is very cool. Um, and we do have an interview. <laughs> I'm sure Rod Carew is tuned in and thrilled that we're excited yeah. for him. Uh, we do have an interview coming up. Ben, give us the the lowdown. What's coming up from the Pensacola Blue Wahoos next? Yeah, we're talking to Daniel Van about the team, who is the team's uh, communications director about DIY Jersey Night. DIY stands for do it yourself. Don't sit back waiting for someone else's help. That's a Beastie Boys line too. Um <laughs> But it's a really interesting theme jersey, unprecedented, very unique. And Dan Van from the Pensacola Blue Wahoos is going to tell us how it all went down uh, this past Saturday night at Blue Wahoo Stadium. This past Saturday, August 13th, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos became the first minor league baseball team to wear fan 
designed jerseys on the field with each one fully customized. It was DIY Jersey night an unprecedented uh, theme Jersey experience in Pensacola. And uh, we wanted to learn more about this and what went into it. So to that end, we have as our guest today on the show before the show podcast, Daniel Venn, the director of communications for the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Daniel, thanks for being here with us. Hey, gentlemen, how are we doing? Thanks for having me. Hey, we're doing great. And uh, DIY Jersey Night, of course, standing for do it yourself. And so it was a whole bunch of different fans who did it themselves, who designed these jerseys. Um, so each one looked a little different than the one before, maybe a lot different. Um Seemed like a lot of organization here, a lot to pull off, um, probably a lot of permissions to be granted. Uh, let's start at the beginning. How did this all come about? How did this idea uh, germinate? Yeah, as an organization here in Pensacola, um, it's, it's kind of our goal every year to do something that no team has ever done. Um, every year we want to do something brand new. And so you've probably seen us throw our whole stadium on Airbnb in 2020. Uh, that was something no team had ever done. Last year, our Crabzilla uniforms with the orange jerseys, the orange pants with the crab butt right on the or crab face right on the butt. Um, nobody's ever done that before, and hopefully no team will ever do it again. And so this year, we were looking for that, that brand new idea. Um, and this actually came out of an event we had in January called Fish Fest, which was a preseason kind of fan fest, get fans together, a couple players there, Q&As, autographs type events. And one thing we found at events like this is that the Q&As are a lot of fun for the parents but the kids sometimes get bored sitting in a Q&A for a while. And so we set up in the corner like a coloring station where kids could color uh, a sample jersey if they wanted to, just a piece of paper with a jersey on it. And it was mainly just to keep the kids occupied while the parents did the Q&A. Um, but at the end of the event, we found that it wasn't just kids doing it. A bunch of adults and fans had jumped in and colored jerseys because who doesn't want to design a jersey for a minor league team? And so we collected all these, these coloring sheets and we're going through them as a staff. And we're like, oh, that one's really cool. And that one's really cool. And that one's really cool too. And we're like, how could we decide on just one of these to actually put on a jersey? If we were going to do a fan designed jersey, you know, we couldn't pick. There were so many good ones. And then I don't remember who, but somebody asked, like, why do we have to pick? Why do we have to pick just one? Let's do all of them. Um, and that really led to the jersey, uh, the idea for the DIY jersey night where every player was going to wear a different jersey designed by a different fan. And getting to see it actually take the field last Saturday was super cool. Yeah. So the jerseys themselves, uh, what elements uh, were the fans, you know, able to design and uh, you know, how did the fans, you know, get that opportunity? You had an auction set up. Yeah, we had a uh, half of the jerseys were sold um, at auction to fans in advance who could purchase the player they wanted. The other half were done by kids at a local children's hospital. Um, but really when we first brought this idea to major league baseball and they were great to work with without um, we sent them the email, like, Hey, we want to do every Jersey different you know, colored by a different fan. And like their original response was just like, no, you can't do that. Um, you can't wear different jerseys on the field. Like that's against every rule. Um, and I work with a couple of coworkers with kids and they always tell me that like the terrible twos aren't the worst time. It's when they turn three and they start questioning everything and they start asking why all the time. Um, and I kind of became a three-year-old to major league baseball. Cause like, no, you can't do this. And I'm like, why? And like, well, it's against the uniform code. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, every player has to wear the same uniform. And I'm like, why? And eventually, like, I broke them down, I think, where they just, like, gave in. And they're like, fine, make a proposal, stop asking us questions, you know, show us how this is going to work, and maybe. And so um, we put together the proposal. You know, the big thing was that the fans were only allowed to color the logo 
and the numbers. They couldn't alter the actual base color of the uniform. Every uniform had to be white, but the logo and the numbers could change. Um, and from there, there was a, a big testing process because we came with this proposal and Major League Baseball saw it. They said, okay, this is possible, but prove to us that it will actually work on the field, that you know, when a player slides into second, it's not going to ruin the jersey. If it starts raining, the jerseys aren't going to just turn tie-dye. You know, prove to us this is, could survive field conditions. Um, and we didn't know if it could. And so we ended up ordering a bunch of sample jerseys from Wilson. Uh, we went to like our local Michaels hobby stores and we bought every brand of fabric marker they had. Like we had like two dozen different types of markers. And we sat down as a staff and we just started coloring these sample jerseys, documenting like which brand of marker we were using on which jersey. Um, and we colored them. They look great. We sent it to Major League Baseball. They're like, cool, they look nice, but we got to see game conditions. And so we didn't know how to simulate that. So the first thing we did was like, what was the worst thing that could happen? Okay, if it rains. And so we took all the jerseys and we got like a fireman's hose, like one of the ones the grounds crew uses to wet the field. And we lined up all the jerseys and we just sprayed them with water point blank. And we're like, if they can take a fireman's hose, they can take rain. And so we sprayed all the jerseys on, on video and we sent the video to Major League Baseball. And we're like, look, it took a fireman's hose. If it starts raining or the players get sweaty, the jerseys didn't run. And Major League Baseball said, well, that's great, um, but let's put them through the ultimate test. Throw them all in the wash. And so we took all the jerseys that we'd colored, we threw them in the wash, put it on a wash cycle. Uh, we didn't know what we were going to get when they came out of the wash, if they were going to be tie-dye or if they were going to hold up. Um, but they held up. We took them out of the wash. They looked great. And we sent it to Major League Baseball. And we said, look, like they've survived the fireman's hose. They survived the washing machine. We think these will survive a baseball game. Um, and they agreed and let us move forward with the idea. From there, it was putting together some good rules. Staying inside the lines was one of the biggest rules, um, but making sure all the jerseys were gonna be appropriate. No one was gonna write anything offensive or do any advertising or break any copyright laws. Um, but once we really got all that squared away, uh, Major League Baseball said, go ahead. And we put up the auctions and, and got to coloring. And just how creative did folks get with this? Like what were some of the craziest designs you guys saw, even like you said, sticking to those stipulations of being within the lines and, and only touching the lettering and the numbers. Yeah. we'll note here that while this is an audio medium, Daniel is wearing one of the fan right. design jerseys yeah. as well. And uh, as he's speaking is pointing to different elements and we wish you could have that visual too. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually wearing Paul McIntosh's jersey. This is one a fan bought they haven't picked up yet. So I hope they don't while we're come to pick it up all around this call because it'll get super awkward. But um, this one's completely dog themed. It's got um, little dog paws, little dog bones on it. It says rough life on it. Super cute. But we saw so many different ideas. Um, Jose Devers, our second baseman, uh, his whole jersey was colored to look like a watermelon, which I loved. Um, some of my, my favorite ones, my most creative ones, the fans actually came in advance to games and met their player they bought the jersey for and asked the player, like, what do you want on your jersey? What are your hobbies? What are your pets' names? Well, you know, where are you from? And they actually did the jersey specific to the player and what the player wanted on the jerseys. And those were some of my favorites. All right, so... I how re reproducible now do you feel like this is? Is this something you guys could do again next year? Is this something that's going to become like once a month thing? Especially considering these are basically one-offs. Like they, they can survive the wash, but I can't imagine you're going to be reusing these a bunch. Yeah, we won't be reusing these. Um, all the jerseys worn in the game were either sold in advance or auctioned to benefit the kids at the children's hospital. But it's an idea we'd love to do next year. I've never seen our players as excited about a promo jersey night. 
I mean, they, when I brought the stack in, the players one by one held each one up for the whole clubhouse to see and said, oh, you're wearing this jersey. Oh, look what you're wearing. I mean, the players were so excited. And our players actually asked, next year, can we color them with the fans? You know, if a fan buys my jersey, can I meet that fan and help them color it? And so the players were super jacked about it. Um, so I think it's definitely something we'd love to do again. We were able to help a good cause with it. We were able to give fans an experience they'd never had before. And next year, I think we can just do it bigger and better. Daniel, I want to ask some of the the nerdy uniform, nitty gritty stuff. When you got the jerseys from Wilson, explain to us what the uh, the makeup of them was. Was it just a standard jersey with a blank, you know, word mark across the front, or is that a special material that Wilson had to to use in order for you guys to be able to color them in? What? How does that all work? I know this is audio only. I've got one hanging here. I'm just going to grab it for you guys as um, So the jerseys we got were just a standard. A standard uniform material and then it was almost like a color rush white jersey where it was just a white blue wahoo jersey with the outline of our logo and the outline of the number um on each jersey it looks like a there, real life version really, of like if you were going to walk into a restaurant they hand you a children's menu with the stuff to color in on it that's what this jersey looks like it's just a blank black and white template it's like if you took a coloring page of a baseball jersey and brought it to life absolutely that's awesome <laughs> when uh when the players get to experience something like this you talk about how excited they were um you know players wear in the minor leagues throughout the course of a, a minor league career you're going to wear all kinds of crazy jerseys uh for theme nights and and different occasions and all of that what were some of the best reactions i mean was there anybody who specifically was like i really want my jersey this thing is incredible this really means a lot to me like what were some of the specific player reactions yeah, I think normally when you carry in like the stack of promo jerseys, the players are like, oh, what are we wearing? And you show it to them and they're like, okay, and then they go about their day. Um, and then I sit there and I hang them up one by one in the locker and it you know, takes me a long time. When I carried these in, like the players grabbed them out of my arms <laughs> and they like got in a big circle and they're all like, hey, Eli, you're wearing this one. Hey, Kobe, you're wearing this one. And then the players went and hung them up in their teammates' lockers for them because they all wanted to see the different design. It made my job so easy that day. Um, we had one player after the game actually asked for the phone number of the fan who designed this because like, I just want to call this fan and tell him it was great. Like, I just want to tell him it was cool. Um, so we saw that a couple times. A couple players actually snuck up to the auction table and bid on their own jersey because they wanted to keep it at the end of the night. Um, so, yeah, we, I mean, the players loved it. Um, the coolest one that came out of it, you know, as, as we mentioned, is half the jerseys were done by kids at the local children's hospital. And about 15 of our players actually went to the children's hospital and colored them with the kids, which was a super cool day. I mean, it was it was such a cool experience for the kids, for our players, for the families um, over at the hospital. Um, but one of the jerseys was done by an eight year old boy named Gunner. Um, and Gunner has he's been through it. Um, he's eight. He's already in surgeries. Um, he's had both of his legs amputated and lost all the fingers on one hand. And he colored Andrew McInvale's jersey, one of our relief pitchers. And he didn't stay inside the lines because on the back he wrote "Never give up" in big letters across the back. And then he did a a handprint of his hand, which he's missing all of his fingers underneath it. And Andrew saw this jersey and he said, "Like I need to know this kid's story. Tell me about him." And when he heard the kid's story, he then reached out to the family, uh, called the kid's family, and invited the kid to the stadium. Um, and we didn't know this. He then went to the team store. And when I say he bought one of everything, I mean, he bought every toy we had in the store, every plushie, every youth T-shirt. I mean, he bought literally one of everything in our team store. 
he had the whole team sign a bat, a ball, and a jersey. And then our whole team went up and we met the, and they met Gunner and his family at our stadium and they gave him all this cool stuff. Um, and they invited him to stay for the game. And then after the game, Andrew actually went and got Gunner, wheeled him onto the field, and then sat with him for the fireworks. And it was just, it was such a cool moment. You know, it was it was so cool to see. Um, working in minor league baseball is is fun because you get to watch baseball every day, but it's 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 stuff like that that you know really is what why we do what we do. And so seeing that moment was awesome. And you know, for the kids' jersey to have such an impact on our team, I mean, it was it was really cool. Yeah, and a, a, another reason that uh, minor league teams do what they do. I mean, of course, there's charitable tie-ins and connections with the community are paramount. But, uh, you know, they like to create industry trends and, uh, you know, have other teams maybe be inspired by what they're doing and, uh, you know, ideas take off. That's, that's how it works in the industry. So have you heard from other teams uh, about this idea being like, wow, how did you pull this off? Do you think this has legs, uh, not just for you to repeat it in Pensacola, but maybe something that other teams will do in the future? We saw a ton of social engage, social media engagement from other teams. Um, normally, you know, a lot of other teams aren't jumping on like and share and stuff from their opposing teams. But uh, the day of, we saw just a ton of social media engagement from a lot of teams around minor league baseball. I'm not sure if anyone's reached out to us directly yet about how they could replicate this, but we'd love to help them. We'd love to do this in more ballparks next year because it was great for the fans. It was for a great cause. Our players loved it. And so if any teams want to repeat this, I think we've learned a lot on how to do it this year and how to do it better next year. And, and we'd love to see it at as many ballparks as possible next year. Well, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos DIY Jersey night took place last Saturday, uh, August 13th. Big success. Uh, something we hope to see in Pensacola again and uh, hopefully around the industry. Um, Daniel Venn, congrats to you and uh, your coworkers for pulling off such a unique idea and, uh, you know, acting like three-year-olds in a very productive way. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hey, thanks so much, guys. Daniel Venn from the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Um, that was such a fun conversation. I was like getting emotional when he was talking about, you know, the special designs from kids in hospitals and players sitting with with little kids and watching fireworks. And all. I mean, what a cool story. And uh, big ups to the the Blue Wahoos for doing that. Do people say big ups anymore? Did I just hearken back to 2003? What what happened here? You basically just carbon dated yourself. I just had like a what happened here. A bubble burst in my brain. It was I like think you're in fine. high school again. I uh, honestly wouldn't have thought twice about it, but you know, we're two men good. in our thirties, so <laughs> for two non-cool guys in our thirties. Um, well, let's keep rolling. We have huge news from MLB Pipeline, which is the brand new top 100 prospects re-rank list and re-ranked top 30 organizational prospects are up and live now. Um, Sam, one of the uh, one of the tips of the spear in this reorganization, along with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo and the rest of the staff uh, at Pipeline, you guys obviously do the heavy lifting. And this is, uh, I think, a top 100 list that generates a lot of discussion regardless of when it's released and who's on it. But for some reason, this re-rank feels even more so. We were talking last week off air about Jackson Churio and where you guys were putting him versus where other services were putting him. Francisco Alvarez is our, our top prospect in baseball, but you know, there could be an argument there for Gunnar Henderson with the Orioles or Corbin Carroll with the D-backs. Um, this is a list that gets a lot of discussion. And I just want you to give us your, your initial thoughts, takeaways, impressions, and then we'll dive a little bit deeper into it. Yeah. And, and I really like the way you put that is that you know, this is a debate. I think a lot of people get wrapped up in the fact that 
you know, you see a number next to a name and you're like, well, this player is worse than this player. And what is, you know, why do you guys hate this player? Cause you had him lower than somebody else. And uh, to be honest, you mentioned the top three right there. The big three that we have them right now is Francisco Alvarez, Gunnar Henderson, Corbin Carroll. If anybody wants to make an argument for any of those three, I'm not going to stand in your way. Yeah. They're valid really arguments. Not. Yeah. Like I, I, we have Francisco Alvarez, number one, there are discussions to be had about Gunnar Henderson, number one. There are discussions to be had about Corbin Carroll, number one. I think any of them is valid. I think you could even expand that a little bit if you wanted to, but the way we we have it, it is a big three and everybody else. And if you want to look at it, we have overall grades on every player. Every player we rank, all 900 gets an overall grade. Alvarez, Henderson, Carroll are the only 65s. But I say that because they are also all 65s. They are on the same tier. We believe they're pretty equal in, to, in terms of who they can be professionally. They're going to be different types of players, but in terms of bringing overall value, um, we think they could be pretty even when it all when it's all said and done. Now, if you want to compare this big three to the last time we had a big three, which was in the preseason, and that was Bobby Witt Jr., Adley Rutschman, and Julio Rodriguez, even without hindsight, I'll, I'm going to take those first three. I'm going to take Witt, Rutschman, and Rodriguez. Hindsight makes it look even better. I mean, Rutschman and Rodriguez have been really, really good in the majors this year. Bobby Witt Jr. is just getting going. Um, some struggles here and there, but you know, I fully believe he's going to be a multiple, multi-time all-star 2020 threat the rest of his career as well. This group doesn't have that ceiling, but it's still really darn good. And I'll make the case for Francisco Alvarez because, listen, at the end of the day, we did put him number one. The reasons we like Francisco Alvarez, you got to start with the plus-plus power. He's been hitting major league quality home runs for a long time now. Um, Buck Showalter was even talking about it this spring when he was hitting homers. Uh, he was like, you look at him, he looks major league ready at this point. He's the youngest of the group at 20 years old. It's just by a few months. Um, Gunnar Henderson's also t- 21. Corbin Carroll's 21. Um, so none of them are old by that sake. But Francisco Alvarez doing all of this in an age 20 season isn't without precedent, but it puts him in an upper echelon for sure. The power is going to play no matter where he is. And he plays a premium position at catcher. Now, catching is actually pretty deep in the minor leagues right now. But when you look at who is a quality catcher at the major league level, it usually has a much lower offensive bar. Alvarez has some defensive questions. We're going to see how that comes out. I believe he's going to be major league average as a catcher eventually in terms of framing. There's a chance that framing isn't a, as big a deal moving forward. We don't bake that into our thoughts here. But if that does end up being true, then Francisco, Francisco Alvarez is going to be even more valuable because the bat's going to play. It's going to be a really tough position to hit normally. Um, but if he's putting up 30, 35 homer seasons, uh, I was on MLB Network earlier today. I don't really like using comps, but they asked for one. And the one I gave, which I know a lot of Mets fans are going to jump at is Mike Piazza. Now, I think he could be 75% to 80% of Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza is arguably the best offensive catcher we've ever seen. If Francisco Alvarez is 75% to 80% of Mike Piazza and stays behind the plate, that's an incredibly valuable player. And that's somebody who can be you know, an all-star level catcher for a very long time, which is not something we say very often now. Um, you have to look at somebody like Yadi. Molina or JT Rail Muto, somebody like that who's like, all right, listen, this guy's going to be a good catcher for a very long time. Adley Rutschman is that as well. Um, Adley Rutschman, much better offensively well rounded. I think Francisco Alvarez has more power 
than Adley Rutschman does. So he's knocking on the door right now. I know it's been a difficult transition to AAA so far. I think people get too wrapped up in that. Alvarez got off to a slow start at double A this year, really turned it on late. He shows an ability to adjust. I think projecting forward, he's going to be incredibly valuable as a catcher. Gunnar Henderson's going to be really good. 2020 potential, basically already there now. Um, flipped the switch, started walking as much as he struck out at double A. It's gone back the other way at triple A so far, but he's knocking on the door of Baltimore right now. And Corbin Carroll looks major league ready. Big question with him is I think Reno and Amarillo inflate his offensive numbers and people get caught up and it's like, oh, he's going to slug 600. He's not going to slug 600. I think it's going to be average power in the end. And that dings him a little bit. That's why we have him number three behind Henderson. Um, but all three of those guys are really, really special talents and deserve to be on a tier of their own. Okay. Beyond those three, what are the things that people will take away most from this top 100 list? We mentioned Jackson Churio and his climb, obviously, this year, right outside the top three. Got Grayson Rodriguez, Anthony Volpe, Jordan Walker, Gabriel Moreno, Marcelo Mayer, Diego Cartaya, and Yuri Perez round out the top 10. Um, Drew Jones, the uh, the Diamondbacks' um, second overall selection in the draft this year. He sits at number 12. Um, there is so much talent that has jumped in from the draft this year. Guys who have made big climbs from the start of this season to where we are now at the midseason rankings. Uh, what what are your biggest takeaways outside of that top tier? Yeah, I mean, you brought up Turio, so I'll bring him up too because I got some questions about him on, on Twitter. Um, you know, it, it may seem like somehow we're the low person on Jackson Churio. Jackson Churio wasn't top 100 to begin the year, and he's now number 11. Now, the, the difficulty with a top 100 list is that these are not stock markets. We are not adjusting these daily. We set them, and then we have to kind of put them off to a side for a while. Jackson Churio, his entire profile is filled with rocket fuel. Like, if we, we have to take a snapshot when we did, which was August 16th, and the way we had it was that he's number 11. You do this in two weeks, he keeps hitting at high A. Maybe he moves past Yuri Perez. He keeps doing this at the end of the year. Maybe he moves past Marcelo Meyer and, and Diego Cartaya. He has as much helium as anybody here to mix my metaphors using rocket fuel and helium. But it's it's plus plus speed. He's going to be a great defensive center fielder. He's hitting for power. The biggest questions I have, which are something his coach even told me a, a couple months ago, are on breaking stuff away. There is some swing and miss there. It's electric tools everywhere. At some point, that's going to catch up to him. Is he going to be able to adjust back? I think he can, but we still have those questions on him. He's only 18 years old. He's going to have a lot of time to answer those questions. So when we do th this again, you know, we might have one more market corrections at the end of the season, and then we're going to do this again in the preseason. We're going to have more data on Jackson Churio, and maybe we're going to move him into the top five. We'll see how he handles this high A transition, or maybe the league adjusts back to him. We'll have to keep an eye on that one. Um, you mentioned Yuri Perez and Grayson Rodriguez. There are two top pitching prospects. The list is actually not that loaded with pitching right now. I think that's just an issue with this class. I don't think it's necessarily speaking towards a trend, although it's something to keep an eye on. How would, how do we value pitching? What do we look at pitching as? As pitching transforms in the major leagues and guys aren't going seven, eight innings. You know, if a guy, his ceiling is going to be only be going five innings and outing, all right, I'm probably going to rank an outfielder above him who's going to be an everyday guy. That's just the way it goes. Uh, and with injuries being an issue, you know, we have Grayson Rodriguez, number four. Grayson Rodriguez would probably be a 65 if he wasn't hurt. He would also probably not be a prospect if he wasn't hurt. He would probably be in Baltimore already uh, with, you know, Adley Rutschman and that 
spark plug Baltimore Orioles team. So there's a lot to weigh here. Um, Yuri Perez, we love him jumping into the top 10. That it was a legit debate coming into the year. Who is the Marlins best pitching prospect between him and Max Meyer, Edward Cabrera, Max Meyer had Tommy John surgery. So that takes him out of the running, but Yuri Perez has been phenomenal this year at double a, uh, at just 19 years old is a fiscal specimen at six foot eight. Uh, he's got three above average to plus pitches, really good control, better control than you would expect out of somebody that tall. Um, so yeah, it's just been fascinating to see his climb as well uh, and becoming one of the top right-handed pitching prospects in baseball. And, you know, if we'll see where he's going, he's, he's kind of hitting his innings limit here. Grayson Rodriguez might return at the end of the year. I think these are probably going to hold even going into the preseason, barring something freak happening. Um, but the fact that it's a legit conversation between these two, considering just how high we were on Grayson Rodriguez coming into the year and how good he was at AAA before the injury is, is certainly a testament to Yuri Perez. In case you are wondering, by the way, I mentioned where Drew Jones was, uh, the second overall pick in the draft. 1-1, Jackson Holiday is only two spots behind him at 14th overall. Um, there's a lot of 2022 draft talent from the first round in this new top 100, as you would imagine. And you can check it out at MLB.com. Um, Sam, is there anything else as far as, I'm going to put you on the spot, guys that you think people should keep an eye on as maybe the next I don't want to say the next Jackson Churio because it's very difficult to jump from outside the top 100 to essentially the top 10. But is there anybody else who you keep an eye on who's kind of in the back end of that top 100 that you think, oh, this guy might be next to, to really pop? Oh, yeah. There's one name who I, I absolutely love. I have a major prospect crush on, um, you know, talking about how pitching can be a little bit thin right now, but his stuff has been amazing. It's Tink Hence. Yes. Of the Cardinals at number 96. Tyler, you, you I'm sure, have been following a number of Tink Hence starts this year at single a Palm beach um, coming into the year, they were super careful with him last year. Um, you know, being a 2020 pick 63rd overall um, now this is his age 19 season. So he's moving to Palm beach, still young for the level, but has been phenomenal there. He's got a one seven, nine ERA 67 strikeouts in 40 and a third innings. Um, the fastball is basically boarding on plus plus at this point. The curveball is really good. The changeup he's made into an above average offering and is getting plenty of whiffs there. The big question on Tink Hence and the reason why we don't have him higher is because again they've been very limiting in him with him in terms of his starts. Um, you look at you know how many innings he's throwing per start. His last one was two and a third. The one before that three, three and two thirds, four, four. He's not getting through a lineup a third time right now. Now the stuff itself. If you look at it pitch by pitch is great. How does it hold up against a team that's seeing it for that second and third time? We haven't seen that yet. That's how the ERA has been really good. You know, just getting those limited looks. Um, I would love to see him expand it out. How is the stuff going to hold up? How, how is his arm going to hold up all these questions, but Tink Hens has a big arrow. I'm glad we got him in the top 100 because if he's able to throw these pitches for six innings, which he very well could do starting next year in 2023, he's a, top five right-handed pitching prospect in baseball. Good stuff, uh, as always, from our very own Sam Dykes around this new top 100, which, like I said, you can check out at MLB.com. And uh, we'll step aside. Josh Jackson swings by for Ghost of the Miners, and then we're back to wrap up the show coming up next. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, 
Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghost of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once touched glory, the others can serve us only as allegory. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The White Plains White Ibises. B. The Red Springs Red Robins. C. The Golden Golden Pheasants. Isn't your face red if you didn't pick B. The Red Springs Red Robins? Who were managed by Red Norris beginning in their inaugural season of 1947. <laughs> lit up the Tobacco State League through 1950. Representing a 19th century spa town in South Central North Carolina and carrying a working agreement with the Philadelphia A's, the Red Springs Red Robins struggled as fledglings but later soared to great heights. After the 47 club posted a winning percentage of 480, failed to land a single player on the All-Star team, and drew only 21,000 fans, far and away least in the league, these Robins took off in 1948 and had the whole circuit seeing red. Although it finished in third place, a half game behind the Wilmington Pirates and five and a half back from Orville Nestle Road's Sanford Spinners, Red Springs flowed to a 75-62 and 62 record and flooded out all the competition in the playoffs, claiming its first crown. And it was more of the same in 1949, although first baseman Joe Mangini, a stalwart batsman for the Red Robins in their first two campaigns, moved on to the Martinsville A's of the Carolina League, Bill Harrington and Thomas Carl Bud Campbell helped make up the deficit as the Redbirds again finished the regular season out of the Catbird seat. The Dunn Irwin Twins were 81 and 54, but gobbled up the field in the postseason. Campbell, a strong hitting shortstop described in the press as classy a field, was instrumental to Red Norse's Red Robins despite also getting playing time with Martinsville. And hard-throwing right-hander Harrington was old reliable through the year's end, earning three wins in the playoffs. Red Norris netted a promotion to Savannah for the 1950 season, meaning the Red Robins got for a manager another odd duck. Ducky Detweiler, a third baseman who'd made the majors with the Boston Braves before the war. Ducky's Red Robins ducked into the playoffs with a 68-61 third-place finish. They were 21 games behind the Lumberton Auctioneers and were plucked by the Spinners in a four-game sweep in the first round of the playoffs. On January 29, 1951, word went out that the Tobacco State League would be suspended for the year. We're still waiting for that suspension. That's how the Red Robins turned blue. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams was really in business in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Florence Financiers. B. The Sheboygan Traders. C. The Beaumont Exporters. Want to know the answer? Get an NBA. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is trying to make a cup of tea, and he's gotten himself into hot water.
thanks as always to your friend and ours, Josh Jackson, for uh, this week's edition of Ghosts of the Miners. And before we get out of here, MILB.TV is where you can catch all the top talent in minor league baseball. And uh, still a little over a month for you to uh, continue to watch the best prospects as they matriculate toward the big league. Sam, what are you watching on uh, MILB.TV this week? Yeah, so I've got my eye on Syracuse is playing at Charlotte, and I bring that up for multiple reasons. The first one being, if we're going to talk about Francisco Alvarez being the number one overall prospect, you should watch Francisco Alvarez. Um, And the second being the fact that now that he's playing in Charlotte over this weekend, the series is wrapping up on Sunday, we have StatCast data on those games. Um, So you can check out you know, baseball savant, plug in the game ID of Syracuse at Charlotte and follow along with the game to find out that Francisco Alvarez just hit, you know, a 360 foot double or hit one off the bat at 110 miles an hour. Mark Vientos is also on that team. Brett Beatty is not. I don't know if we've mentioned that yet. Brett Beatty officially in the major leagues now. Homered uh, on his first swing in the major leagues. Pretty incredible. Cool. Incredible. I, if I could give advice to any rookie, it would be like swing for the fences in that first at bat. Just go for it. They don't know you. No, exactly. They're going to serve you something good. And not only that, but you're so juiced up in your first at bat. Pour all that energy. In. Just yeah. swing like you're, you know, one of those dudes who uh, used to tour the country smashing 700-foot softball home runs into the upper deck of Major League Stadium. Just be those guys. You probably have like 5% extra bat speed. Yeah. Just go for it. <laughs> I'm not saying he went for it, but it was – because it was like a breaking pitch that he smashed and it, it wasn't like he was swinging out of his shoes. He really did a good job of sitting back on it and pulling it, but uh, I love to see that. Anyway, Francisco Alvarez, Mark Vientos, obviously the Mets have some injury issues right now. That's why they brought up Brett Beatty, but it could also be a signal that, hey, we're going to be looking to rely on our top bats and give them chances when they arise. So Vientos and Alvarez knocking on the door there at Charlotte, and you can follow along. The game on Saturday will all. So actually be broadcast on MLB network. If you want to check that out, um, they're going to be talking about some rules changes and how they're going to be working. And it's going to be a real showcase for that. If you can't catch that game will be on Sunday on MLB TV, just as normal. Um, so watch Francisco Alvarez, however you can and, and be marveled in the ways we are. I have a message to Texas Rangers fans. I know it has been a, uh, a very tumultuous couple of weeks, but One of your top talents is back in action, and that is Josh Young, who has returned to the field. Josh Young had uh, a freak injury in the offseason. Back in February, he was lifting weights and tore the labrum in his left shoulder, um, which is always like a nightmare. When I'm like lifting weights, it's always a nightmare of mine. The (laughs) difference is I am weak and can't lift anything heavy. So it's probably not going to happen to me. Josh Young, friend of the show, uh, who we had on, I actually looked this up, April 8th. Was it April 8th? Is that what it said? April 8th of 2020. So like three weeks into the world ending, uh, we had Josh Young on to talk about, as we deemed it in the podcast summary, quote, the circumstances of 2020. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was a long time. But we learned a lot from Josh Young uh, in that episode. He was so much fun to talk to. But Josh is back now with the AAA Round Rock Express, uh, a place where he played 35 games last year uh, and batted 348 with a 1088 OPS. So far through seven games back, listen to these numbers. 
Josh Young is 12 for 29. That's a 414 batting average. Of those 12 hits, he has three doubles and five home runs. He's driven in 15, and he's also walked three times against five strikeouts. He has stolen a base. His OPS is at 1519 through a week back in AAA. So my message is. There are, as John Daniels said in his statement yesterday, there are brighter times ahead uh, for Rangers fans. And if you want to watch Josh Young on MILB.TV, you might want to do it now because he may not be there for long. Uh, That's a guy who could have made his big league debut last year, had some injury issues, uh, had some COVID protocol uh, time that he was away from action. So uh, a player who brings a lot of promise um, when he's healthy. And right now he looks very healthy and very good. Uh, Round Rock is at home against El Paso this week. They're on the road at Albuquerque next week. So you can catch all those games at MILB.TV. And uh, if you're a Harry Potter fan, it's wizarding night at the ballpark on Friday uh, against El Paso. So, you know, I'm sure there'll be some cool lightning bolt jerseys and maybe some goofy spectacles. I was going to say, we are not big enough Harry Potter nerds. No. I, I wish I could like say some spell right now. Same. and be like, oh, Same. he made the ball blank. Yeah. I, I, I loved reading the books. I, I bought them the morning they came out, you know, but it's, that's that part of my life is behind me. I've only read the first three. Really? Yeah. Which like, I don't know why I stopped. I remember reading the first one and being like, oh, I get it. These are delightful. And then four is the most sports Harry Potter. Book. Is it really? It's the Goblet of Fire. It, the whole thing is based off a, a competition. I was like, well, this is as good as it gets. This is right. tremendous. I got to uh, dive back in. Yeah. So anyway, if you're uh, a big Harry Potter fan, it's wizarding night. <laughs> <laughs> There's something there for you in the ways that they're not It's there. Josh Young and it's also Harry Potter theme. Um, but you can check all that stuff at MILB.TV and um, that'll do it. For, uh, for Benjamin Hill, for Josh Jackson, uh, Daniel Venn, huge thanks to him for joining us from Pensacola. And for Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Mon, and we will talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.